Thank you so much for joining us today for our LifePoint podcast. At LifePoint, we believe everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and with God, anything's possible. Hope you enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. My name is Danny Rivers, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. I want to add my voice to all the voices that have said Happy Father's Day to all of you men in the room today, those of you who are at home watching this, hearing this as a podcast, thank you. And I want to say, um, we are in a series called The Summer on the Mount, and this particular text is not a Father's Day text, so I'm going to have to say what I want to say to you guys right here, right now. And um, I want to just say how very, very much I appreciate all the dads in the room. There's all this data out now that tells us that whenever dads are present in the home, our kids have a, 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 a exponentially higher opportunity of, of making things happen, moving things forward. Now, this isn't to say that when there is not one present that, that it's not going to happen, because it does all the time. Can I get an amen from somebody? It does all the time. But I want to say to the dads, and this is why I'm saying this to you guys, some of you will feel like I do sometimes that I'm not getting it right, that I'm not doing a good job, that I'm failing on some level. I was in a room with eight guys a week and a half ago, and every one of us admitted that we struggle, that we don't always know what we're doing. Sorry, kids, um, you didn't come with a manual, and we don't really know. What, we're making it up as we go. Uh, but, but I want to say to you, you're doing better than you know. And the very fact that you have chosen to stick around and be present and be purposeful, and, and even if you don't get it right all the time, means so much. And, and only time and eternity will tell how very, very, very important your role is. And so I want to say right on, dads, thank you, thank you, thank you for who you are, for what you do, for how you do it. God bless you. Um, we, we're giving away prizes today all day that come from a knife company named the James Brand. And we like knives here at LifePoint. Now, somebody, I forgot my knife today, so immediately a lot of knives showed up to me. And one of them was this weapon of mass destruction. Um, and then my own children remember that I forgot my own, so now I have some. And if you're new here and you're like, what is happening right now? There were some suggestions about making a shirt uh, called Knife Point Church, and I was like, no. No, absolutely not. Come on, somebody. Uh, I have a thing where I like knives and watches and technology. Um, other people have vices. Mine are that I like things too much. Come on, can I get an amen from some dads? So, fe fellas, I hope you get a knife or something like that today. Um, in case the enemy needs the devil. Come on, sometimes you got to cut the devil and he will flee or something like that. So I think that's in there somewhere. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, and we're going in this series called The Summer on the Mount, which is, um, we're just walking through the Sermon on the Mount all summer long, and uh, I want you to remember, as you're turning there, what happens at the beginning of this, of chapter 5, Jesus ascends a mountain, his disciples follow him up, they gather around him, I think we have a picture to kind of show you. I wasn't there, by the way. This is not a personal fit picture that I took. Man, Danny's really old, you know. Um, this is just a drawing, just to kind of give you a visual. Now, the reason this detail that he's at the top of a mountain is there is not so that we can visualize him up at the top of the mountain. It's very important what's happening here. Matthew is portraying what Jesus is giving off. He's, the vibe he's giving off, Jesus is saying um, that I'm the new Moses, right? 
That's what Matthew's telling us. Remember, Moses is the one who receives the law on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. He comes down, he's so bright from the glory of God that he has to wear shades. Come on, he has to wear shades. His future's so bright. Any 80s people here? Um, um, and, and, and so now Jesus is going up on a mountain like Moses did. He sits down. He has 12 disciples around him, which represent the 12 tribes. Because Moses, when he comes down, he gives the tablets. He t- gives the law to the 12 tribes. And now he's saying, hey, I'm the new Moses. I'm giving a new law. Uh, and, and I'm establishing with this particular set of laws the, the kingdom of God. And this is what the sermon is about. It's an announcement, everybody. It's an announcement of really, really good news. Although sometimes when you're reading it, you're like, I'm not sure if that is or not. It is. It's, it's, it's up there. The kingdom of God has come down in, in the person of Jesus. And in addition to that, Jesus and Matthew are working to make sure that, that Jesus' story is tied directly to Israel's story. So there's a lot of examples of this, but let me just give you two or three. Um, like Israel, Jesus spends time as a baby, as an infant in Egypt, running from Herod, right? Um, both Jesus and Israel spend, Israel spends 40 years in the wilderness Jesus goes out and spends 40 days in the wilderness. It's not an accident that he chooses 40 days. Come on, that's a long time, right? He picks 40. Both Israel and Jesus are baptized in the Jordan River. When, when, when they go into the promised land, they all have to walk through the Jordan River. It's a, it's a form of baptism. Jesus gets baptized there. And, and what Matthew is trying to show us is that the kingdom of God is being established in the person of Jesus Christ, right? That it's God's kingdom and fleshed embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you, we're going to do, we're going we're gonna to study chapter five, verse 17 through 20. Not a fun passage, everybody. Okay, just look at me. It ain't fun, all right? I'm going to try to make it fun, but it's not fun. And you're like, bro, it's Father's Day. Just teach us something fluffy. Sorry, Jesus didn't teach something fluffy. I'm going to tell you what he said, okay? So just FYI, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach it. It's a controversial passage, in fact, but I'm going to tell you what I think it means but I could be wrong. You're welcome, everybody, right? Here we go, verse 17. Do not think, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. By the way, he just finished telling us that we are the light of the world and we are the salt of the earth. If salt is about distinctiveness, which it is, the light is about amplifying what is distinct about what God's done in our lives. And to that end, he launches into this text, Okay. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And when he says this, he's talking about the Old Testament, just FYI. I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. These are both literary devices, by the way, where he's just describing what the smallest letters in their alphabet is. He says, none of them will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then this, this, this climactic statement, for I tell, you, I, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The rest of Matthew 5 and really the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is him unpacking that last statement, that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, um, you won't enter. Now, that sounds like bad news. It's very, it's very good news, actually. We'll unpack that next week, I promise you. Now, Jesus starts out with this kind of defensive postures, or like, like kind of a denial. Do not think, right, he's talking to his disciples, do not think 
that I've come to abolish the, the law and the prophets. Now, why would he start a section like that? Well, it's because that's what he's being accused of. People are saying it, especially the religious people. He doesn't believe in Moses. He's throwing away our traditions. He doesn't believe in the law. He, he, he's healed people on the Sabbath. He's, he, he doesn't always wash his hands when he eats. He eats with sinners. Come on, he eats with tax collectors. What kind of rabbi would do such a thing, right? This is what they're saying about him. And he's clarifying that, especially to his disciples. I haven't come to deny the law of the prophets. He said, in fact, I've come to, uh, to fulfill them. But what he's doing right out of the gate is he, is he is stating the authority of God's word. In this particular case, it's the Hebrew scriptures. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is standing with and on God's word and telling us you need to do the same thing. Now, remember, Jesus is the living word. Right? Do you remember John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Nothing was made that wasn't made by Him. Right? In Him was light. Light was, uh, and, and he goes on, verse 11, he says, And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? He is the living Word, the Logos, the living Word of God. Amen, somebody? So Jesus is 100% saying, I am the word of God, and the word of God is pure, and it is good. Right out of the gate, right? Now, remember when he's saying this, none of the New Testament has been put to paper yet, right? He's stating in his own authority, which no other rabbi would ever do. Rabbis would say, hey, rabbi so-and-so and and rabbi so-and-so say what I'm saying, and they get authority from somebody else. He's like, I don't need anybody's authority. I'm telling you my own authority. The word of God is pure. The word of God is true, right? Do not think that I've come to throw away the Old Testament scriptures, right? Now, when he says law, the law and the prophets, the law is the law of Moses. The prophets are all the writings of, of the Old Testament. There's a distinction, I think, that has to be made here, okay? There, there is the law given to Moses, which we call the moral law of God, summarized perfectly in the Ten Commandments. It is a summary. It is not all of it, but it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God is God's timeless forever enduring commandments, everybody say that word with me, commandments, right, about the way that we ought to live our lives, the things that we should do, the things that we shouldn't be part of, right? That's the moral law of God. There was the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system about how we worship, about how sins get rolled away, right? They're types and shadows. They're prophecies that led up to the fulfillment in Christ. There were dietary laws. Can't eat crawfish. Come on, somebody. That's a shame, right? Like, like they're terrible actually, right? Um, like shrimp, like, right? No, so there's civil laws. Then of course there were the traditions of man, which the religious leaders had been building, 600 plus of them. They had become the de facto law, even though that wasn't necessarily what God intended. What Jesus is referring to here though, I think, is the moral law of God, right? Because the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, we don't do those anymore. We're not supposed to because Jesus has fulfilled them. So, When we talk about moral law of God, the morality that God wants for us, uh, it's given in the New Testament as well, not just the Old Testament. These are expressions of the character of God, right? And, and, And so if God decides, if Jesus starts to go, hey, all the the moral law of God that like it's not really that big of a deal anymore, he would be wrecking his own reputation. For example, if Jesus were to say, hey, now that I'm here, Now that grace has come in the person of Jesus Christ, it's okay. Grace makes it okay to worship idols. Would Jesus say this? No, because he would be denying his own deity, his own supremacy in the world. He would just be a God amongst other gods. 
And he's not willing to do that, right? If he were to say, hey, I know it's Father's Day and we're here to honor fathers, but never mind on honoring your father and mother, right? He'd be taking away a promise that God gave in the Old Testament, which says, if you honor your father and mother, it'll go well with you, you live long in the land, right? Like, what if he said, hey, you know what? Now that grace is part of our life, murder is not a big thing, right? Right? Stealing is fine as long as it's not more than $1,000. Come on, right? That's, that's actual laws in parts of the world. I'm not going there. Lying is perfectly acceptable. Adultery, eh, take it or leave it, right? Who wants to follow a God like this? There's nothing in the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, that Jesus decides, eh, it's not really that important anymore. In fact, as we'll see next week, He's going to give us six examples from, basically from the Old Testament, where he actually tightens up those laws. One of the laws, no, I'm just, I was going to say something, I'm not going to. Um, he calls out anybody who would relax one of them. Here's what he says in verse 19. Therefore, anyone, whoever, whoever say this with me, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It's not a salvation issue, right? He's not saying you don't get to go to heaven. He's just saying... Hey, listen, you're going to be the least when you get there, right? And some of you are like, I'll just take the least, all right? right? <laughs> but whoever does them, whoever does the commands, teaches them will be called great in the kingdom. So I don't know which ones would be, would be considered the least, but one of them says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's donkey or his house, come on, his car, his job. What if I got up here today and said, hey, listen, you know that, that one commandment that says don't covet? It's not really that big of a deal. Covet the heck out of everything, right? Just covet your neighbor's job, their car, their motorcycle, their knife. Come on, some of you are coveting my knife right now. You wish you had this one. Now I can't make it come out. I don't want your knife. I'm coveting another guy's knife that works. Right? You, you, would, you, you would say, this brother, this, this brother isn't worthy of hearing, right? And some of you are like, it's already, I'm already there, right? When you brought the knives out, right? So... Now, the word for relax is the idea of loosening, and let me say it this way, more specifically, lessening the importance of the least of the commandments. So, so this is more of an attitudinal thing than it is an action, right? So this attitude found its start early in the scripture, the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis 3.1, where the serpent shows up to Eve and says to Eve, did God really say what, he, what you said he said? Right? It's an attitude. It's an attitude that questions. Now lean in, please, please. This is where it's relevant to us. It's an attitude that questions the validity of God's word. It's an attitude that tries to create wiggle room within, God's, within what God requires. It's a view of scripture that raises doubts about the goodness, the veracity, the relevance, the accuracy of God's word. And it's a spirit of our age. And it's not a spirit so much out there in the world. It's a spirit that tries to creep into church right? Into the church. Did God really say? Did God really mean? Are we really going to buy into all of this stuff? It's 2023. Are we really going to hang on to those old antiquated notions? Well, well, Jesus will clear it up in Matthew 24, 35, when he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Right? So I think this is what Jesus has in mind, at least in part, when he says he's not come to abolish the law. Not just the Old Testament law, but the laws that he's actually giving us in this text, right? He says, in fact, that he's come to fulfill the law. Now, Matthew has, in the first four chapters, he's given us six Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus that have been fulfilled. Six in the first four chapters. 
right? Fulfillment is a focus for Matthew. And, and he alone records what Jesus says here about fulfilling the law. Now, when Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law, he means many things. I want to give you three. Number one, he's saying, I have lived in com- complete obedience, perfect obedience to the law of God, right? Which is important because if he had sinned, he can't be the sinless lamb of God, right? Number two, he's saying that all of the prophecies concerning the prophets like Isaiah and Malachi and Micah and all these prophets, all of them are going to be fulfilled in my lifetime. And the third way he's going to fulfill the Old Testament is he will fulfill the sacrificial system, which required the sacrifice of animals to roll back sins. He's going to do it once and for all with the sacrifice of his own life. The perfect, the sinless Lamb of God will forever, everybody say that with me, will forever pay for all of past, present, future sins of the world. And all of the Old Testament was pointing to this moment and to this man, and Jesus says, it's fulfilled in me. You see, are you with me so far? Now, he's going to summarize the law later on in Matthew, in chapter 22. There's a religious leader who comes to him to test him and says, hey, teacher, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And, and this is the, what? The first and the greatest. And then if you go look in Exodus 20, it is the first commandment, right? It's the greatest commandment. The second one, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor like, like you do yourself. And then he says this incredible line. All the law and the prophets, which is the same thing he's already said, hang are found, they, 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 they're all founded on these two commandments. And then in John 13, I'm going backwards, he's teaching his disciples, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, that's the caveat, right? So you must love one another. And he says, and by this, verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love one to another, to another. Because you can have love for somebody, right? but you don't have to give it to them. Some of you have bought presents for somebody and you lost them, right, at Christmas? Come on, everybody. And you didn't get to give it to them. Love isn't love until you give it to someone, right? So love God with your everything. Love your neighbor as much as yourself. So now what we're, what we're seeing is a summary statement of the summary statement. If, if, if the Ten Commandments are the summary of the law, the moral law of God, Jesus is like, okay, I'm gonna give you two. And if you can just get these two right, all these other ones will fall in line. You see what I'm saying? Right? So Jesus makes it, by by the way, loving God with everything inside of you and loving other people, just like you love yourself, this is how you become salt and light. If we just get absorbed by the culture, the world around us, we become just like them, there is no saltiness. There is no distinctiveness. If we don't, if, if, if we're very, very different, but we don't love anybody, there is no light. Yes or no? This is how this happens. So the gospel purpose, Jesus makes it clear that when we rightly understand the law, the moral law of God, it is not standing in opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes hand in hand with the gospel. Grace flows down, amen, somebody? And grace flows out. Great, come on, say it with me. Grace flows down and grace flows out, amen? So the gospel purpose is that we will be saved by grace through faith, right? 
Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. For we are saved by grace through faith, right? It is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, right? That's what it is. Grace flows down. Over time, though, the effort of grace is not just to save us, but, but to conform us into the image of Christ. And, and, and this is what we're talking, that's what Jesus is about right here. What's God like? What's his character like? It's revealed in his law. And so when the gospel takes hold of our life, so much so that we begin to be formed into the image of Christ, we start to take delight in the law of God. So that, like the psalmist says, how, how I love thy law, O God, right? And, and no longer is the law an enemy or irrelevant or something for the, the, the yesterday. It becomes our friend. And listen, the moral law of God becomes guardrails to keep us on track throughout our lives, right? But people will listen to Jesus hanging around with sinners, hanging around with the lawless and say, well, he's critiquing the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's telling them that they're really not righteous at all. Maybe he doesn't believe the rules are, are, are applying anymore. Maybe he thinks it's okay to break them. Let's just think about that for a second. If this is what Jesus is trying to do. do, do dads, I'm a dad of daughters. Do you want your daughter to marry a rule breaker? Like a little, like, yeah, rebel. Anybody? Right? Do you want to work for a rule breaker? Hey, guys, trust me on this. We're, we don't have to pay our taxes. It's going to be fine. Until one day you're doing the perp walk. Come on, right? On KSAT 12 or whichever one you listen to. Right? Do you, you want to raise some little rule breakers? Right? Some of you are, and you're like, no, I hate it, man. Right? I love them. Right? What, what about when you're going into surgery? Right? What if the last thing you hear from your neurosurgeon is, Man, I cheated and partied my way through med school. I kind of regret that now. But wish me luck. Right? Like, no! Put me back on, over. Whatever under, I want to, anyways. And this is what they think. Maybe, maybe he's just saying it's okay to cut corners, take shortcuts, follow your desires, follow your heart, right? Live whatever you want to because that's what grace is here now for. To which Jesus says, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. The, ro- the law rightfully understood is, is the greatest gift God gave the human race outside of Jesus himself. Grace is meant to save us and lead us to become more like Jesus. So Paul would later on write in this context to, to a guy named Titus. And here's what he says in Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers, say it with me, salvation, Right? To all, to anybody who would choose, right? It teaches us, but the law is not just given for salvation. You see this? I mean, I'm not, sorry. Grace is not just given for salvation. It te- grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So the old translations say worldly lusts. And to live self-controlled, upright, or righteous and godly lives in this present age, right? Next part. He says... While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of... By the way, our blessed hope is that Jesus Christ is coming for us. That's the blessed hope, right? But while we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to what? To redeem, to ransom us from what? All wickedness. And to purify for himself a people, um, which he would call the bride, like a spotless bride, 
that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Salt and light. Right? We are saved by grace through faith alone. Yes or no? Yes. We don't do anything for that. That's not what we're talking about today. We receive what's been done on our behalf. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his begotten son. He leaves the 99 going out looking for us, right? Jesus gives us in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. He loves you just as he finds you. But the point that's being made today by Jesus is that he loves us way too much to leave us as he finds us. And so he gives us grace, not only to save us, but he's not done, grace is not done, but because Paul says grace teaches us to say no. And God is purifying for himself a people. We have to understand this. Grace is not just some sort of get out of hell free card, right? Like Monopoly people, right? It's so much more, right? It's a passport to living in the fullness of God's kingdom to become bright light and to become potent salt doing good. So we all need to know this. Right? You're like, Father's Day, bro. Like, why is it so heavy in here, man? Why is it so intense? I, I don't know who Jesus is. I'm just telling his stuff, right? Holiness, which is, is this kind of otherness, this, that, that's what salt is, distinctiveness. Holiness and righteousness get a bad rap in our day. But in the way that Jesus would use it, it's a beautiful thing. To seek to be transformed, so transformed by the grace of God that we become bright light, that we become potent salt, that we become truly good people is the most important thing you can do with your life, more, exponentially more important than you being successful, famous, rich, accomplished, right? And let me be clear, this is not about rule following. It's about following Jesus. It's not about breaking rules. It's about following Jesus. It's about trusting that his ways, his designs, his plans are better than my native instincts. That, that they are higher, that he knows more about what it looks like to live life than I do, right? So, so then the clarion call comes in chapter six. We'll get there later, but I just want to read it to you. Verse three, 33. But seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his his righteousness. What else could follow seeking first the kingdom but his righteousness? They go together, everybody. Righteousness is simply what your life begins to look like when you live in the reality of up there has come down here, right? It's, it's not rule following. It's not sin avoidance. It's fullness of life. That's the only way we can do what God calls us to, for our lives to be so full of the abundance that comes from following Jesus that there is no room for sin to abound in my life. Father's Day. You're welcome, fathers. Thank you for coming today. Right. Now, let me say this. You cannot avoid sin by focusing on it. All right, let me give you an example. If I say, look at me real quick. If I say to you, don't think about camels. They're beautiful humps full of water, right? They're wonderful paws which can ride up on top of the sand. They can walk for miles. There's a cigarette brand named after them. Do not think about camels, everybody. What are you thinking about? One time I did this years ago. I, I used the camel as an example. I don't know why. And we brought them through. Some of you were there. We brought them through the auditorium years ago. 
and they had, the, the guy bringing the camel through had a little scooper, you know, in case they're, but the problem was that it didn't do that kind, it did the other kind. There was a splash zone across the front row. Folks got their shoes sprayed, it was awesome. And the guy's sitting there with his broom going, what do I do? Are you thinking about camels? Right. You can't avoid sin by thinking about it, by trying to avoid it. You focus on what Jesus has done for you. You focus on what he's got on offer for you. You pursue life. You pursue Jesus. Jesus doesn't say in John 10, 10, I've come that you might avoid sin and avoid it with gritted teeth, right? No, he says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full or abundant life. When you're living in the abundance of the kingdom, you have no room for all the other things, right? And, and when, you, when you fail to see it this way, you will inevitably, listen to me, you will inevitably become religious. When you become religious, you will look for a list of rules to keep you on track, to keep you, quote, righteous. And this is precisely what the Pharisees were doing, trying to check off a list of rules, going, look at all the things that I do. I tithe, I, I, I pray, I fast this many times. I'm all that and some more. And human beings tend to like rules. Why? Because they can be checked off. And the problem is lists of righteousness are dangerous because they have the ability to make us feel righteous simply because I've done something, I've checked something off. Like checklists flatter, but it's the heart that matters. Jesus would say this, right? Now, now here's the truth, everybody. I can believe the correct doctrine, right? I can hold the right political ideology if there is such a thing, right? My, my, my ideas about human identity and human sexuality can be just spot on. I can have a great work ethic. I can come from an amazing family. I can do everything Jesus says and my heart can still be totally jacked up. That's called religiousness. That's called self-righteousness. And it's possible to focus on doing the right things that you fail to become the right thing. This, has been, this is the story of my life, right? Focusing on external compliance, neglecting the conditions of the heart and the inner life, which is what Jesus is most interested in. And at my efforts at rule keeping and list checking off, I can become self-righteous. The problem with self-righteousness is Isaiah the prophet says that our righteousness is like filthy rags in the sight of God. So thankfully, Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who knew no sin, right? God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's talking about sanctification. Hey, there I am. Hey, everybody, right? And justification, right? Those are, those are, those are theological positions. But I want to say this. The righteousness of Christ gets, the word is imputed. It gets, it, gets, it gets put into my life. But just because Christ's righteousness is inside of me doesn't mean that I don't strive to do good, godly things. Yes or no? Right? Now, not, not, now, now in my old life, I tried to do holy things, externally motivated things, in order to become holy, impossible. Everybody, impossible. Right? Now, I try to live holy and blameless now, because God, because God has already made me holy. So let me say it this way. I do holy, godly things now, not in order to be holy, but because I am holy. Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we can say, oh, God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness on me, I don't have to do anything else. 
right? Not to be saved, you're right. But now I'm trying to become like Jesus. Yes or no, right? So the, the, the Bible teaches us that because of the cross, because of grace, our lives should increasingly, over time, not perfectly, but more and more perfect as we get older, right? Become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world, all because of grace, right? This is what Jesus is after, that once we are saved by grace through faith alone, we go on to maturity. It's not about salvation. It's called sanctification. I'm being compressed. I'm being conformed into the image of Christ, right? Now, Jesus, when he says he fulfilled the law, I'm almost done, I promise. You're like, please, hurry, bro, right? When he says he fulfills the law, what he's saying, he's obeyed it. Jesus Christ, son of God, God in human flesh, has obeyed the law perfectly. And we're like, but I don't have to obey any of it, right? Obedience is an ugly word in our day. And yet Jesus says, I fully obey the law. We have become a law unto ourselves. We decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. We do not appeal to anything outside of ourselves in our culture, in our country, right? Nobody can tell me what to do. Do what you feel is good for you. You do you, boo. Come on, right? right? <laughs> the problem is that none of that is scriptural. There is a law of God. There is a higher standard that comes from God himself, and nobody's allowed to change his standards but him. But we try to do this all the time. And, and so what happens in our culture is we say, nah, bro, you keep all that. I'm going to go my own way. And the right, Solomon the wise would say in Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right, but in the end it's death. And folk are going to walk off a cliff and I'm just saying, as, the pastor of, as one of the pastors of this church, I'm saying, please don't. Please don't trust your own heart. Jeremiah, the prophet says, your heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Right? Follow God's ways. Follow Jesus. Obedience has within it this word, die. No wonder we don't like it. Come on, right? What do, what do we mean right there? I die to my fleshly instincts. I die to my natural proclivities. I die to my own worldly ways, to my own agenda. Because Jesus says when he teaches his disciples to pray, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in, as up there comes down, what my, what my response to that is, what do you want from me, God? That's what Jesus is after here. That's what he's calling his disciples to. It's a narrow road though, everybody. Now, let me finish here. I want you to catch the heart of this. I've given you the best I know how to do. This, this is an impossible to topic to teach on. It's impossible, but I'm trying to do my best, okay? Jesus teaches for three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, 7. At the end of the, the sermon, it, it says the crowd is very impressed. In fact, they're amazed, it says. To the extent that they say, we've never heard anything like this. Nobody's ever taught with this kind of authority before, right? They admire him. The crowd admires him, but what happens is a few of the people, lean in, lean in, a few of the people, it goes beyond admiration. It goes beyond amazement. Something happens and their hearts start pounding, their, 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 their minds start racing, and they're thinking, this is it. When they hear the entirety of the sermon, this is it. This is what I've been looking for my whole life, often without knowing it, to, to be cleansed to be healed, 
to be forgiven of all my stuff and my damage and my brokenness, to have a life beyond fear, because he's gonna talk about fear. He's gonna talk about worry in this sermon. To, to, to know God, to, to not be a slave anymore to my sexual desires, to not be a slave to money, or to, or to constantly be managing what people think about me and trying to man, manage an image to trying to get their approval, to not live angry all the time. That's what he's gonna talk about in the very next verse. To not constantly be wanting more than I currently have. To join up with a cause so much bigger than me. To get my often miserable little kingdom and to integrate that into something good and great. To have confidence beyond death. That this is not all there is. And so what they say to themselves is, I must have Jesus. I must follow him. In fact, they say, I'd rather have this man, what this man has, and give up everything in the world than to have everything in the world and give up what he has. I will pay the price. I will do whatever he says to do. I will follow him wherever he leads. I will do this because I must have what he has. I'm not just an admirer. I won't just be a user of Jesus. I will leave the crowd and I will follow Jesus. And Jesus knows that this is gonna happen. And much of what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is, is preparing people for this moment. And Jesus calls us to this moment with great clarity that often following Jesus will involve the payment of a price. Salvation, what is it? It's free. It's the gift of God. Discipleship costs. That's what he's saying. And through the Sermon on the Mount, he describes it. And, and, and in case it's confusing, he narrows it down. In, in chapter 7, verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that, but small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a, only a few find it. And when Jesus says narrow is the way, he's talking about himself, because he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's the narrow way? Jesus is the narrow way. Love him, serve him, surrender to him, follow him, do what he said, hold nothing back. That's the narrow way. What's the broad way? The way of the crowd. You drift along, you reserve the right to do whatever you want. Nobody can tell me what to do. The end of the sermon is Jesus painting pictures. Stark contrast, broad way, narrow way, wide gate, narrow gate, good tree, bad tree, true disciples, false disciples, house built on the sand, house built upon the rock, people who do what Jesus says, people who will choose not to do what it, and Jesus says, all of this comes down to, will you respond to Jesus from your heart or will you not? And that's what we said last week. We, we at home have to decide, are we on team Jesus and his ways, his word, or are we on team culture, team world and their ways, their world? And some of us say, I'm going to try to do my best to straddle the fence, and Jesus leaves no room for that. The gospel isn't the minimum entrance requirements for getting into the, into the kingdom. He never makes the minimum entrance requirement. He just says, follow me. Everybody wants to read you. What's the minimum? He doesn't give it. He, does, he says, take up your cross daily, follow me. I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I, don't, I don't like that. So in John 6, last thing, I promise, last thing. He says a hard saying, they, it says. They said it was a hard saying, and many of his own disciples turned around and walked away. He looks to his own disciples. He says, are you guys going to leave me too? And Jesus, and Peter says these words. He says, Peter says these words. He says, where should we go, Lord? 
you, have the, you alone have the words of eternal life. It's just you. There are no other options. Where do you want us to go? You have the words. We're going to follow you. We're going to trust you all the way, even if it costs us our very lives. We choose you. That. You're like, you didn't make that very attractive, Danny. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. Don't hate the messenger. Come on. So, Father, I I just thank you for your word. It's a hard word. It's a challenging word. God, it kind of strips all of our ideas about what we think we can do and what we should do and what we want to do. kind of strips those away and kind of leaves us out, exposed. Are we going to follow you or are we going to follow ourselves? Are we going to go the way, the broad way? Are we going to take the narrow way? And God, not everybody, not everybody can bear it. Not everybody can handle it. Not everybody will, Lord. And, and, and that's why we're, we're talking today not about our own salvation. We're talking about, God, your best for our lives. We're talking about trusting you with what's best, believing what you said, accepting it as, as it's written, doing what you say do. God, that's what, what's at stake here. Not everybody's going to choose it, but I pray that many do, God. I pray that many people in this room, God, who would call me one of their pastors and who, who, who would call this maybe their church. God, I pray that we would just trust that you, your ways are better, that your ways are higher, that even when we don't even understand all of it, that we can trust that you are good, that you will never lead us, leave us or forsake us, that you're gonna, follow, you're, gonna, you're gonna be followable all the way through, that you guide us through the darkness, through the light, through the ups, through the downs of life. God, I pray that over this summer, as we lean into this sermon that you gave us, that we would come closer and closer to Jesus, that we become more and more like Jesus. I pray that over every heart, every life. I pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen, amen. Give it up for Jesus, would you? Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If this ministry has impacted you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, please visit lifepointsa.com slash give to make a donation. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we hope to see you soon at one of our Sunday worship experiences. God bless.